Second Kings chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, it would be great to, turn, um, to, to grab those now. But if you haven't, we'll, we'll have some of the scriptures on the screen. Now, many of the accounts in the Old Testament revolve around heroes of the faith, right? Men and women who had walked with God and who trusted them to get them through very challenging circumstances. That's par for the course, right? But today, in the account we're about to dive into, this is not the case. Today, the prominent person was neither a preacher, nor was he a prophet. Actually, the guy that we're going to look at was an unbeliever, a commander in the enemy's army, the Syrian army. And this guy, as Josh has told you, his name was Naaman. Okay. So Naaman is especially unusual to be seen as a, a man of faith there or to even be brought up in the scripture because he's just whooped the Israelites' backsides. He's just taken them down. So nevertheless, though, he was greatly respected as a leader. The scriptures talk that he was respected as a leader. So he is possible to have an enemy, but was respected as a leader. A leader of troops. He was a mighty military warrior. And all that, though, was about to suddenly be put on hold. After his great victory, things were about to come crashing down. And here's what you're going to notice. None of his trophies, none of his successes would any more seem important. His heroic war stories were about to fade from his conversation and be relegated to the past. And his presence at all of his parties and his, and his full regalia where he'd go and he'd be with all the pomp and ceremony, that would mean nothing anymore, as you're about to see. Why is that? Well, the why is his world had suddenly changed. And I know a lot of people through COVID whose world suddenly change. Couldn't have even been foreseen what was about to happen. His world changed because he was now a leper. He'd become a leper. And this account is found in 2 Kings 5. It's about a man who was once proud about self-sufficiency. I'm my own man. Look what I've done. But finally, you're going to see him humbling himself before the one and only God who could cleanse him of his leprosy and change his life for good. So I want to start off with the commander's context. You always need to know the context. I'm going to look at the context of Naaman. Naaman lived in a fufu neighborhood. That means a very upmarket, very salubrious, full of luxuries. It's actually Damascus City. Okay, You can go there today. It's one of the oldest cities in the world, archaeological fact. It was the capital city of Syria, and it was very, very wealthy. Fertile and very prosperous. Let's pick it up, 2 Kings 5.1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great, he was a great, and he was an honorable man. Notice the scriptures say that, in the eyes of his master. Because by him, notice this, the Lord. What? An unbeliever is being used by the Lord? Yes. We should get used to that. God's arm is not so short, and he orchestrates everything. His plan is providential and he's all-powerful. Because by him the Lord had given him victory, given victory to Syria. He was also, the scriptures say, a mighty man of valor. Now, that verse alone, verse 1, contains a few qualities that we should take note of. Because it's super easy to just skip over these verses. Notice first, Naaman was important, the scriptures say. He was a commander of the king of Aram's army. 
and that was the dominant force. It's like the captain of the All Blacks, you know. It whooped everybody in the region. Second, he had a high position. And with position came possessions and luxury. That's what came with that position. Scripture says also, as you can read it, he was great, and it describes him as honorable. You can have an enemy who's honorable, believe it or not. And that commander held, was held in the highest esteem by his boss. Why was that? Well, because he was a victorious man, successful. He'd won victories in battle for the Syrians. Actually, F.F. Bruce, which is a trusted source of mine, says that he'd reduced Israel to a mere 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and they were down to the last 1,000 footmen. Incredible. He was a mighty man, also the scriptures record there, and he was a courageous man. So, what an impressive figure, eh? Impressive. He had prestige, he had power, and he had position. And the Bible tells us clearly there in that verse that the Lord had given him victory. And he enjoyed that enviable position. But I left the last three words out. They happen to be critical to this account. And this relates to the commander's condition. And those three words were, but a leper. But a leper. All the success, but. Everything else, but one thing. So things in Naaman's life were totally great, except for one thing. He was totally successful, except for one thing. The Bible says he had leprosy. And as Josh roughly described, leprosy deadens the nerves of your body so you cannot feel pain. Now something, well, that'd be great. <laughs> I like that. No, you wouldn't. No, you would not. Because lepers can walk on sharp objects, shred their feet, and not even know anything about it. They can't feel the pain as an early warning sign to keep away from that. And then there's body disfiguration and the flaking and the loss of color in your hair. So even if he had his full regalia and, you know, uniform on, what would happen is it would make no difference because under it all, he was terminally ill. Naaman was a dead man walking because he had a disease that no man could cure. Now in the scripture, leprosy is often pictured as a symbol or a type of sin. And our sin cuts us off from God. In the same way, leprosy prevents the sufferer from joining with the community. They are put aside. They are separated. Sin separates us from God. Leprosy separates you from joining the community. Now, the only cure for leprosy was divine intervention. And the other thing is, leprosy was not merely a surface issue on the skin. It was deeper than the skin. Again, like sin. The problem is not on the surface and immediately obvious. The problem lies in sinful, human, systemic nature. Now, our hearts cannot be changed either by shallow surface remedies. Don't even go there. They're window dressing. What we need is God's promise of a new heart. Hearts can't be changed by shallow surface remedies either. So here we have Naaman, the central character, a powerful man. He's battling a physical affliction. Just one thing. Now, some of you folks that I know, some of the folks, I should say it differently, some of the folks that I know have everything going for them. 
And particularly, if you look at their lives, they look like everything's going sweet. They've got money. They've achieved so much in their lives already. They've got the prestige and the possessions and great prospects. But if you look carefully, you will discover there was one thing, one thing that's missing too. And that is, they don't know God. And their sins have separated them from God. I was telling my wife this week, great revelation. We're saved. <laughs> I said to my wife, I said, think about that. Why do we say that? Saved. Why am I saved? Saved from what? Saved from separation from God. Saved from a, a fate worse than death. Saved from hell. Saved from sure destruction because that's what the scriptures say. may not be palatable or PC, but that's what they say. So, it doesn't make any difference how successful you are in all these other areas or how great you may be or how much you may achieve or how far you go forward in your lifetime. If you get there and you get there without Jesus... You can have the CEO's job of Facebook or whatever you want. Nothing else is going to matter. Be careful of that. Many parents spend a lot of time trying to get their kids in the right educational track. Nothing wrong with that. Zero wrong with that. All of my kids are all degreed. Doesn't mean to say it's good. But what I'm saying to you, don't forget the other thing. Do not forget that. Many people will spend spending buku bucks spending their kids to be good rugby players, soccer players, netball players, and all this other stuff. And they invest in those sports. So they should. But don't forget, how much are you investing? Time, effort, and money in your kid's spiritual development. So again, it doesn't matter how far you go forward in your lifetime, what job you have, if you get there without Jesus, nothing else matters. Mark 8, 36, on the screen, on your outline. Actually, not on your outline. How does a man benefit if he gains the whole world? This is Jesus speaking. And yet he loses his soul in the process. Who cares if he's the best soccer player? If he's got the top PhD? Who cares? means nothing. Nada. Everything's going well, but one thing. That one thing's going to take you down. So Naaman doesn't know what to do. He has no answer for this disease, nor does anybody else know. So he's on a death tour. That's a term that the military use where we're not coming back from this. So let's take it down. Unless something happens. But something was about to happen. Something very unexpected was about to happen. An encouraging word was about to come from a very unlikely source, the commander's captive, in 2 Peter 5.2. And the Syrians had gone out in raids and brought back a captive, a young girl. Excuse me, brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. So she's saying there, if only my master would know Elisha, he would have hope. Because there ain't no hope over there. But over here, with Elisha and the God that he serves, there is hope. Without him, there's no hope. Actually, the commander and the captive girl could not have been more antithetically juxtaposed. Here we are. He's a Syrian. She's an Israelite. He's a great man. Great stature. She's a poor servant girl. Young girl. He's unclean. She's clean. He's remarkable and had tremendous achievements and success. She's very unremarkable and the lowest on the totem pole. He's a famous leader. And again, she's a servant. We don't even know in the scriptures her name. It's not there. She'd actually been kidnapped from her home. 
Think about that for a minute. Kidnapped from her home in Israel by Syrian soldiers. And her story in one sense is very tragic. She's been torn away from her mum and her siblings. And she's been taken into captivity and sold into a foreign nation, into a wealthy family. And by this time, by the way, just to give you some idea, she's probably a teenager. But having all that tragedy inside, the scriptures say one thing about this young lady, but she was an effective witness in that family. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your heart set apart Christ as the Lord, always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason. The reason. Evangelism involves speaking. Don't let anybody else misquote the supposed Francis of Assisi quote, which he never quoted. Evangelism will involve speaking. It'll involve actions too, but it will absolutely involve speaking. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, as we discover, she points Mrs. Naaman to Elisha the God, and the God of Israel. And again, though her name isn't recorded, her position was humble in Scripture. But she had such an impact on what happened there that we're still talking about that story 2,500 years later. Now, if Naaman was the hero of Syria, which he clearly was because he'd given such tremendous victory to the king, this young girl was the hero of Naaman's story. She was the bridge between hurting and getting help. She was it, a young teenage girl, full of confidence, full of expectation. And you know what? I counted them. She only spoke 20 words. 20 words in the whole story. But this great commander's life was never the same because he intersected with an unnamed, humble servant girl who was courageous enough to share. And it reminds us that sometimes God uses the incidental things to change people's lives dramatically. So Naaman receives the young girl's message via his wife, right? And goes straight to his boss for help. Because it's kind of like, hey boss, I need to take you to her back down to Israel and I need to get some help here. Now notice, even though she was far from home, remember this, she did not forget her God. Wow, I thought about that. And she was quick to witness to his great power. Her faith, here's the point guys, her faith was real even after she left home. And this is where the faith gets tested. Hers definitely was. Also notice, had she not been a faithful worker in the house, she would never have been an effective witness. Because her, but because of her faithfulness, her witness was authentic and it was rewarded. And Jesus needs witnesses like that today who will do their job authentically, but also be courageous enough to speak up. It actually says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. There is a courage that is required of Christians today, and we need to just put that on the table. So Jesus needs witnesses. So now we'll move over and have a quick look at the, at the commander's correspondence. This is how it all happened, and the account for us is recorded in 2 Kings 5. So Naaman told the king, whose name was Ben-Hadad, 
pretty weird name. Hey, Dad. <laughs> what the young girl from Israel had said. And the king says, hey, go visit the prophet. The king told Aram. And I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying his gifts, 7,500 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Whoa. And by the way, this guy Ben-Hadad, next slide please. There you go. That's him being mentioned in archaeology. Lock, stock and smoke and barrel. This guy was around. You can find that. So that's called the Steel of Zakur. And it's talking there about Ben-Hadad, son of Hazel, which is exactly how the scriptures record him. Now the first thing to notice about this account that we've just looked at in that verse is that Ben-Hadad had wrongly assumed that the prophet was under the king's thumb in Israel. He was under his employ or under his command, and the king could just boss the prophet around. That's mistake number one. The second thing I noticed when I read those scriptures, if you can just back up to that scripture, back up there one second, Chris. Sorry, mate, I'm taking you backwards. Is that medical expenses are blooming high, <laughs> as they are today. Look at that. You know, 10 sets of clothing. And this is not the sort of stuff you pick up at Kmart or Hallenstein's. Fit for a king, this stuff is. And I did a bit of calculating, and it's around about $7 million worth of, uh, of a gift he's, he's hauling there. Seems like a lot for someone trying to heal you of, hip, uh, of leprosy. But have you noticed in Job, I was reading Job this week as well, in Job 2.4 it says, All a man has, he will give for his life. What am I going to do? I'm going to die. So here's the man, he's leveraging all that cash. And on the way to see a person, in other words, a king, whom he mistakenly thinks is going to help him, it reminds me of how many lost people run from one lost person to another, seeking purpose and meaning and relief, all while Christ is there offering to meet their need. Now note also that Naaman, like many lost sinners, tries to purchase his healing. He tries to carry favor with God. Well, if I just do this, well, maybe God will smile on me. But let me tell you clearly, that is impossible. You cannot make God love you any more or any less. God's love is constant. It is not fickle. There's no shadow of turning with him. You can't earn that salvation. Because salvation, like healing, is given by the grace of God. Not demanded as a right here. I'm paying you. Fix me. It doesn't work. So from this point on, everything gets all mixed up in the story. Because the correspondence forgot to say anything about Elisha. There's not a word of it in there. So the king of Israel mistakenly thought that he was supposed to be the one who was supposed to heal the guy. And he starts to freak out. Listen to what verse 7 says. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I bring back to life? Of course, no. Why does this fellow send someone here... Uh, to be cured of his leprosy. So now I see he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. In other words, he's already had his, this king's already been dealt to by this guy. Now he thinks this is a trap. So he's worried. There was no mention of Elisha or a prophet in the letter. And King Joram, who was the name of the king of Israel at this time, wrongly assumed that he was the one who was expected. By the way, wrong assumptions cause a lot of angst. The Bible says get the facts at any price. So some of you who are in a pickle right now, stop, and the word of God to you is get the facts. Facts reflect reality. Yeah. Elisha didn't even enter Joram's mind. Why 
Because the king and Israel and the people of God had forgotten God. Wasn't even on the radar. Something went wrong. God didn't even enter into their minds. They didn't even think that there really is a God in Israel who could actually cleanse his commander. And he was looking at his problem with his power and he was having an emotional meltdown. That's what was going on here. His power with his problem and having a meltdown because he forgot God. And when we forget God, it's easy to be swamped by the seemingly impossible situations that come into my life and in yours. Contrast that, though, with that, to the young servant girl, right? The young servant girl, seemingly insignificant, yet she was full of faith, full of enthusiasm, full of expectation towards God. Way more faith, little girl, than the king of Israel. Something's wrong here. Something is sliding, sliding backwards. Verse 8, so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let, me, please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel, a prophet of God in Israel. So Elisha is saying to King Joram, aren't you forgetting something again? How many times do you have to do this? You just... Being whooped because you forgot God. Now you're forgetting God again. Stop worrying and send him to me. Now Naaman is about to learn that even if Joram had forgotten that there was a true prophet in Israel, there really was, because we're going to look now at the commander's cure in verse 8. That's uh, 9 through 10. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. So what we see here is Elisha, <laughs> this is a funny picture, man. Elisha was not at all awed or intimidated by this great general. Instead, he, he stays inside and he sends a messenger to convey his simple prescription. Then get up. Some would almost think that was rude. He didn't go out to meet Naaman. And Naaman got his tie in his twist. He got offended. A proud man. He expected a royal reception. Don't you know? I could smoke you. And on top of that, on top of all that insult, to go wash in the Jordan? Are you kidding me? The Jordan. It was small. It was a bit muddy at times. And Naaman was starting to get the idea it was beneath him, a man of his position, to stoop that low. But what Naaman had failed to grasp was that the cure lay not in the water of the Jordan, but in obedient faith to God's word through his prophet. He missed that. Obedience is critical in your Christian growth. If you're stuck, check what God last said to you and ask yourself the question, have you done what God said for you to do? And Naaman went away angry. Now, I want you to notice the very next two words. I thought. Ever thought that? I thought. I had expectations over here. What happened was over here. <laughs> I thought. Here's a mistake. I thought he would surely come out to me. Did he? No. 
I thought he would stand and call on the name of the Lord. That's number two. Did he? No. I thought he'd wave his hand over some spot. Did he do that? No. I thought he'd cure me of leprosy. Right there and then. Did he? No. Four strikes. And then he says, Are not Abana and Fafa, the rivers of Damascus, better than any other waters of Israel? My homeland pride coming in here. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? Another thought. That's number five. So he turned off, turned and went off in a rage. He was in a huff. Now that's a bit strange to me. If you want to be healed, quit arguing over the formula. <laughs> Naaman was upset because he wanted Elijah to heal him in his way. And he wanted to do, he, this is a joke, he wanted God to do God's work in Naaman's way. He was directing what he wanted God to do. And then I think it really what he was thinking, then I can get back on with my own conquest and move on with my life. Now the answer was simple, while they didn't. God heals and he saves in his terms, on his terms, not ours. We don't get to write the rules. He is God and we are not. He has the power to do what needs to be done, but don't argue with him. You're going to lose. I read this week a very piercing quote from a Puritan. And he said this, We are not so far from Naaman, talking about us today, and we set up in our minds what we think God should or should not do. And when he apparently fails our particular line of thinking, this is all expectation, we feel a sense of grievance. Naaman fits this mold, perhaps we do as well. We not only want God's benefit, but we also want to specify the way in which he must bring it. So the sovereign God has become our little errand boy. Oh, dangerous territory. He is the Lord and we are not. Oh God, I'd like a car, car, parking place, please. Hold on, hold on. He's God. We're the servants. We're, God doesn't, we revolve around God. Many, many years ago, people used to think that the sun revolved around the earth. Remember that? Before the Copernican Revolution, right? That's what you used to think. Completely the opposite way around. We revolve around the sun. We revolve around God. We revolve around Jesus, the sun, too. There's, an, there's a me orientation in that that makes me extremely nervous, and the scriptures too. So God's ways are not our ways. Do you know that? And sometimes, if we're really honest, that disturbs us. <laughs> Especially when we're younger in the faith, and we haven't got this kind of figured out a little bit more. We haven't read as much of the scriptures. The only way we figure it out, by the way, is experiencing through the scriptures and through the counsel of other godly people who are still on the road with their faith, faith burning brightly ahead of us. So thankfully, Naaman yet again is rescued by his servants. That's hilarious. First one was a little girl, and now it's his servants. They're going to straighten up his thinking. And he's about to learn that the path to healing and salvation comes through humility. Verse 13. Then his servant, circle that, came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, 
dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, and according to the word of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now when Naaman came out of that Jordan, the seventh time he had soft, smooth, silky skin, and his leprosy had gone, burger. He was clean. But listen to me, friends. That is not the most important miracle that happened to Nathan that day. Right? What happened was the commander's conversion. Naaman was not only cured of his leprosy, but he was converted from his unbelief. See, the skin stuff was just on top. What really happened, the biggest miracle, was a change of his heart. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God, and they stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world, that's very exclusive, except in Israel. Exclusive. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. No. On that day, Naaman became a believer in God. And it's one of the great Gentile accounts of conversion in the Old Testament, along with Rahab and Ruth, and the Ninevites. Actually, the conversion of the Ninevites with Jonah was the largest revival recorded in Scripture. So he returned to Elisha, confessing that he rejected the false gods of Syria and turned to the one true living God. You can see that right there. In today's language, from that moment on, that commander of the Syrian army was born again, was a follower of God. Now, the commander apparently had thought he needed to pay Elisha back. I mean, the guy's just been, become a Christian. All that thinking hasn't changed yet. And he wanted to give him some of that loot, some of that money. But Elisha would have nothing to do with it. Friends, this is not just an account of the Old Testament. It also mirrors a truth in the New Testament, and that's this. There is no sacrifice we can ever make to atone for our sins. None. There was no penance we can undergo to stave off divine judgment to be saved from that. Nothing. There's no good deed that we can perform to make up for our bad deeds. It doesn't work like that. There's no love we can offer to win God's affection. On the contrary, the scriptures teaches this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, I've met many successful business people, and some of them find it very difficult. So there's no such thing as a free lunch. They find it very difficult to figure out that salvation is truly a free gift. It's free, but it was very expensive to the person who paid for it. So as a Gentile, I want you to know this. Naaman started out an enemy outside the blessing of God when we started this morning. And we also start off separated from God, outside God's intended blessing for our lives because of sin. But just as Naaman was cured from his crisis by a free gift, God gave us his son. For while we are still enemies of God, Romans 5.8, he blessed us with the gift of his Savior, Jesus Christ.
And likewise, Naaman found out healing and salvation was not for sale. Both are free gifts from God, and God alone can give those. Now, so remember this too. Our money, like Naaman's, is useless when we face death. It's gone. Psst. Gone. No matter how much wealth we accumulate in this life, doesn't matter. Does not matter. It will evaporate when we stand before our God and Creator. Our faith in Jesus Christ and His love offering for us is the only thing that will save us, not our bank account. It counts for nada. An interesting ending as we wrap this up. This is the commander's challenge. If you will not, said Naaman, then please let me. I could have left this part out, but I didn't. Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for you, uh, for your servant. Uh, for your servant will never again, that's a good commitment, look at this commitment, straight off the chute, never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God. But, here it comes, may the Lord give your servant, uh, forgive the servant for this one thing. When my master enters the, um, the temple of Roman, to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I bow down there also. When I bow down in the temple of Roman, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Whoa. Notice what he says. He says, go in peace. After Naaman had traveled some distance, and it goes onwards. So since Elisha would not take anything from Naaman, what's going on here? He said, look, can you give me two whacking great mule loads and they have buckets on either side of them to take back to Damascus? And why did he do that? He wanted to build an altar to the Lord in his homeland. That's why he was doing that. It was an Israeli fan God and he never wanted to forget it. Some people, what they would do when a great thing of God had happened, they'd build a heap of stones in a certain place to say, hey, remember that? This is why he was doing this. He had a new skin. He had new faith in the one and only God of Israel, and he wanted to build a new altar. This is what's going on here. He was set, set up here now, right, to be quite the witness in a very dark land. And I'm sure his boss would be asking a lot of questions of this guy. And Naaman foresaw smartly a future challenge because he knew the commander of the king uh, um, of the uh, um, the as the commander of the king of the army in Syria, he will be required to go with his boss into the temple of Rimon, a false pagan god that was no god at all. And as a new believer, he was kind of nervous how I handle that. But notice that Naaman was not asking for permission to worship the god Rimon, but to help the king get up and down on his very steady and strong arm. So Naaman was showing his commitment to God here. Instead of adding God to one of his many gods, a nation's collections of gods, he acknowledged clearly and specifically there is only one true God and you would not worship any other gods. So that's what's going on there. But he was asking for pardon in this one area and thereby keeping his influence with the king. Smart guy. I want to close with this passage with a couple of thoughts and this, I want you to think about the progression of this miracle, the, the progression of the miracle. It starts with a problem. By the way, all miracles start with a problem. <laughs> Every one that I've ever seen starts with a problem, and often a ginormous problem. It leads to a conversation with a young slave girl. Then I also want you to know that the miracle almost derails as the cry for help spreads from one king to another, and then Naaman flat out refuses the solution. 
the solution. He refuses. What? And then he dips himself in the Jordan seven times, and ultimately the guy's saved. So stunningly, Jesus calls out this great step of faith. Jesus, in the New Testament, calls out this guy, Naaman. And his faith. Why does he do this? To condemn the Israelites' lack of faith, their lackadaisical attitude towards God, and their complacency towards God. They had rejected the true God because they were just, they were not acting on his word. And they were embracing other gods which were of no help. They were chasing other things, much like many people do today, chasing other things. Here's Jesus speaking about this instance. Luke 4.27, Jesus speaking. There were many, but notice this, there were many in Israel with leprosy. How many were in Israel? Right. Think about that. Lots of people in need. Lots of people have the issue. Lots of people have the problem. Yet, not one of them was clean, not cleansed. Not one of them in the whole of Israel. Only Naaman the Syrian who demonstrated faith. That would have been a slap in the face of these people who were listening to that. At the center of this entire account is a real hero, a young girl, a faithful witness, taken captive in a foreign land. Don't ever disparage your youth. You have an effect. Compared to the commander, she had zero status, zero significance, and 10,000 reasons to be bitter and ticked off. She'd been yanked from her parents and her happy friends and family. But she wasn't bitter. She showed tremendous maturity. She was confident in her God. That witness changed Naaman's life, and Jesus even mentioned it. I wonder how it impacted Naaman's wife and his children and soldiers under his command just because one girl in a 20-word statement changed this man's life and changed his family. Secondly and lastly, the point of the miracle. The greatest miracle in this story was not what happened to Naaman's skin. It was what happened to his heart. Don't miss that. Naaman became a believer in the one true God and his entire life was transformed that day. Naaman understood that his sins had been forgiven and by his obedience to the word of God had made him whole. He could have gone back and jumped up and down a thousand times in the other rivers and wouldn't have done a thing. And Jesus tells us that the forgiveness of sins is the greatest miracle that can be performed in my life and your life and only he can do it in his way and it's free. So even though what happened to Naaman's skin that day was truly miraculous, no doubt, no doubt about that, we do need to understand that Naaman's body one day, including that skin that had been healed, would one day deteriorate into the grave. But what happened to Naaman's heart and his soul, for those of you who know Jesus Christ, you will see Naaman in heaven and it is an eternal miracle. Let's bow. Father, thank you for this amazing account of salvation. Lord, there may be some of you listening to this now or sitting here who's never had a miracle like that happen into their lives. And they need a spiritual miracle, Lord, a miracle to renew their heart and their hope. They need to open their hearts, though, and confess their sin and have their sins forgiven.
And Lord, may they receive Jesus as their Savior. If you today are listening to this and you've never put your trust in Christ, let me ask you to do it now. And pray this prayer in your heart and say something like, Dear God, I need a miracle. I need to be saved from my sin and I need to be born again. Why don't you just tell God, I want to be, I want to become a Christian. And say, Lord, come into my heart. Would you forgive me of my sin and give me the gift of eternal life that you promised? You say that we must be born again. That's very clear, Lord. Would you give us the grace and the humility to do what you say? And today, if you pray that prayer, what I know for sure is this, God will hear you and he'll answer that cry in your heart and he will save you. And for that, we give God, the one and only God in heaven and his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the glory. And all the people said,